0: Welcome in. This is the 48 Days Online Radio Show. I'm your host, Dan Meller. We're going to spend the next 48 minutes talking about questions that you have about real life work. Can you do work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable? Yes, you can. We're here to tell you how. Stay with us. We've got a lot of great questions coming up today in this edition of 48 Days Online Radio. Well, here, I'm going to title today's podcast, I Only Remember the Good Things. I'll give you a quotation in a little bit to kind of frame that. Here's some of the questions we'll be answering today. Dan, when can I leave my job with a clear conscience? What are the three or four steps for selling anything? I want to apply for a job, but I'm missing one of their qualifications. What do you do if you see a posting on a position, but there's one thing you're missing? Well, we'll unpack that. Dan, how can I start my business as a freelance graphic designer? Here's one. Somebody says, I have a cautionary tale for your listeners. I feel like the boiled frog. And then somebody wants to know, how can one access, oh no, how can one assess when it is time to look for another work opportunity? How do you know when your time's finished? Time to exit. Stage right. Get out of there. Out of dodge. Let's go. Well, here's a quotation for today. After the first performance of the Messiah in London, when Lord Canule thanked Handel for entertaining the audience so completely, Handel replied, I should be sorry, my Lord, if I have only succeeded in entertaining them. I wished to make them better. Now, I was just at a conference in Chicago, Internet Profits, last week. Met a lot of people, made some great new connections there. If you were there, great meeting you. And we've got lots of ideas to share about that. But one of the things that we heard is business people work for the money. Entrepreneurs work to push humanity forward. Now, you can be an entrepreneur even if you're working for a company. That's just a term. But the kind of work that we're talking about is not just to make money. There's a whole lot of ways to make money. Yes. What we're really doing is trying to push humanity forward. I love that kind of phrase. So the way that we're going to frame questions here today is how can we push humanity forward, our own humanity being part of that? How can we push ourselves forward in our own personal development as we're doing work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable? Now here's where the heading I said, I only remember the good things. That comes from Richard Branson. I'm questioned sometimes about my background. Background came out of a poor farming family and people sometimes want to know a lot about that. And frankly, there are some things that I just don't remember, but I heard Richard Branson recently say, I can't remember the bad things. I only remember the good things. I love that kind of philosophy. We don't have to dwell on the bad things that happen to us in wisdom meets passion. My latest book, I've got a section that talks about we can tell our life story in multiple ways. I can tell my life story is a very pathetic you know, poverty stricken background, or I can tell it in a way that frames it where I was allowed to experiment. I was allowed to see things that other people didn't see and to figure out why things worked and not having TV or radio in the house drove me to books, which has served me extremely well and continues to do so. But I have been accused even by extended family members about being in denial about all those thing, all those issues that I ought to deal with. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me! At this stage in my life, why do I have to go back and unpack how my mommy potty trained me? I'm moving on, but I love Richard Branson's philosophy. I can't remember the bad things; I only remember the good things. Now, here's another thing, just to, just another tidbit before we go into the questions. We hear a lot about setting goals. Now, at this point, we're in April, 2013. So, you know, we should see where we are in terms of the goals that we're accomplishing for this year. Where are you in terms of what you decided you wanted to accomplish 2013? So you should be 25% finished with those if you're on track. But here's the deal. I often hear people set goals and then they're kind of just slouching around, you know, until they hit it big, until all these goals, you know, they're going to be happy when, Something happens when they lose 30 pounds or when they get the job promotion. No, that's not the way it works. Your happiness can't depend on reaching those goals. You have to be happy now. You have to enjoy the journey you're on. You can't wait to be peaceful and agreeable and content and happy and serene. All those wonderful characteristics. Those are qualities you can have today if you decide to. And having those qualities today will surely accelerate the process of reaching your goals. But I see a lot of people who are waiting until everything is perfectly aligned. All the lights are green in their life before they're going to be happy and content and all those things. No, be those things now and it'll speed up your process of reaching your goals. Remember, reaching the goal is not the end result anyway. It's the journey we're on. I mean, it's like a little kid anticipating Christmas. I mean, Christmas morning, my gosh, 10 minutes, they rip the presents open. It's over pretty anticlimactic what is enjoyable it's those three or four months leading up to christmas that's where kids are excited beyond belief we ought to be the same way it's the journey itself that gives us the greatest sense of fulfillment i mean how many people do you know who gee they hit it big financially and then they're like yeah gee what's next like a dog chasing a car You know, it's the chase that's thrilling. If a dog ever caught the stupid car, what would he do? Wouldn't know what to do with it. Well, I like that kind of picture of the same path that we're on. Well, one of the things that's happened, I always like to start out with some success reports and we never lack for those. There are so many, but there was one yesterday that I got that really kind of blew my mind. This comes from a young guy who's right here in Franklin. His name is Ty Ward his dad owns Premier Speakers Bureau, um, which I'm listed on there. But they, they promote speakers, and his dad is well-known around, around the world, certainly. But Ty posted a blog, put it on our Facebook, so we saw it. But here's what he said. The title of his blog is, Why I Think You Should Start a Mastermind Group. Now, get a load of this. Three months ago, a good friend passed on a 44-page ebook about mastermind groups. Now, that happens to be my document on the power of starting a mastermind group, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a second. Ty continues, on the surface, it explains a mastermind group as 12 or less people meeting once a week, reading books, sharing life together. However, the more I read, the more clear it became that the proposed idea was more than a glorified book club or holistic men's group. At the core of this mastermind concept was a culture of intentional relationship investment and advocacy that captivated me. So three months ago, five guys and I started an an experiment with the idea. We get together every Friday, smoke cigars, and make it our primary goal to care just as much about the professional, relational, and spiritual success of the one next to us as we do our own. Now, listen to this. Since then, four of us have doubled our income five of us have launched new businesses and all of us have found a new level of fulfillment, both professionally and personally. Obviously I'd highly recommend starting a group. However, my recommendation wouldn't be just because of the career implications. Yes, the potential of doubling income and launching new endeavors is great and certainly a decent motivator, but here are five more worthwhile reasons for you to start a mastermind group. And he goes on advocacy breeds confidence, confidence, Life favors those that pursue it intentionally. Life is best when it's shared. Collaboration is the new competition it pays to give. So it goes on with that. Now I'll link to that blog in my podcast notes for today. But I'll also have a link for you podcast listeners for that 44 page ebook on one plus one equals three, how you can create your own mastermind group. Getting notes like that, here are five young guys that started meeting three months ago and in the three months, four of the five have doubled their income along with other benefits. That's a pretty powerful testimonial. Now we've got that, you'll, you'll see I've set that up where that is normally a $17 product and we've reduced it down to $7. I have so much feedback about what's happening in the lives of young the gen x and gen y in terms of starting their own mastermind groups i mean I, i mean i run into people on the street who say oh my gosh this transformed my life i want everybody to have that it's seven bucks right now i'll link to that in the show notes as well now let me go on here's another positive report this comes from jesse in cambridge ontario canada Dan, I want to thank you for everything you do because your podcast, when I was last laid off two years ago, my fourth position in three years, I had a different mindset to my new job search. I went to a job fair with the mindset of a salesperson determined to sell my abilities to anyone who was there. I bumped into another person I knew who would have been a competitor, but she stated the job fair was a waste of time as they were mainly looking for software developers. Well, from that waste of time, I got six interviews and a position that was created for me in a growing company. Thank you so much for your podcast and encouragement. I'm hoping to get soon get my husband to drink your special Kool-Aid because he feels stuck right now too. Well, thanks for that note, Jesse. I never get tired of hearing results like that where a simple changing of your perspective, your attitude, your mindset, you see those opportunities that other people walk right by. Great story. All right. Let's go into some questions here. Karen from Pennsylvania says, Dan, I recently purchased your audio book, Nuts and Bolts. However, I have a specific question regarding the situation at the school where I teach. I teach at a small Quaker private school and the school is struggling. In light of that information, along with other concerns, I would like to ask for an extension on the deadline for signing my contract. How would you recommend that I do that without running the risk that they cancel my contract? The faculty has only been given a week to review our contracts and to notify the school of our intentions. Thank you in advance for any guidance that you can offer. Well, Karen, I guess my first question would be, how much time do you need? How much time do you think that you need in order to make a decision about renewing your contract? I mean, really, a week should be adequate to do that. Now, is it going to raise a red flag if you ask for an extension? Yeah, it probably will. It'll let them know that you're considering whether you will or you won't. And it may put you in kind of the uh, weak candidate category. And if they have other applicants, which likely they do, yeah, it could make, put you in jeopardy your position. I would encourage you to take the week and just gather the facts, get the opinion of other people, look at your options. Do a Ben Franklin close if you need to, where you list on one side of a page the pros and the other side the cons, but go ahead and make a decision. Now, if you're debating with another job offer that you have in the offing, then I think you just need to be honest about that. Just tell them that you are looking at some other options and that you need another 10 days in order to make a decision that you can be confident about, so... Either way, I move toward making decisions quickly. Indecision is the greatest thief of opportunity. I believe that. The Bible tells us in James, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. When we're indecisive about one area of our life, it tends to creep over into other areas as well. Now, in 48 Days to the Work You Love, I lay out the process that Joanna and I have used for years and years, of uh, the entirety of our marriage, where we use a two-week time frame to make even major decisions. But in that time frame, we assess where we are. We get the advice and opinion of other people. We identify perhaps three or four options, do a little bit more research, choose the best one and act. Now that keeps us from having a decision that just erodes and festers and creeps into other areas of our lives. It also can harm in a relationship. If one thing, person thinks yes, the other person thinks no. If that goes on, that can change the relationship pretty quickly. So we moved through that decision-making process. Now, I'm quick to pull the trigger. Joanna's not quite as quick, but we decided early in our marriage on two weeks as a reasonable time, and that requires, that allows us to make a decision if that is where we're going to live. I mean, in, literally, in terms of what part of the country we're going to live in or what kind of what house we're going to buy, what car we're going to purchase, where we're going to send the kids to school, what church we're going to attend. Boom, any of those. We allow two weeks Make a decision and don't look back. Now, you may think, well, what if you make a wrong decision? I mean, people ask me about that sometimes. Well, what does that mean? I mean, what, what is a wrong decision in any of those things I described? Even if it's in terms of selecting a career, major in college, or starting a business, how do you determine if it was a wrong decision? As an example, when we moved to Nashville and wanted to look for a new church church, to be connected with well we identified real quickly that there were some great churches here so we selected one and became part of that and we're part there for probably about 12 years or so would it have been a mistake had we chosen another church not at all It's just a different kind of connection. Life goes on anyway. I mean, if I decide to buy a Jaguar rather than a Mercedes, is that a wrong choice? No, it's just a different choice. There's not one right choice. Even those of you who are waiting on God's will for your life, I mean, don't think that God has one decision, that he cares if you buy a red car or a green car or a blue car. He really doesn't. Trust me. I hate to disappoint you, but he doesn't. Just go ahead and make a decision and know that it was your choice. Know that you could have made another decision just move on. I mean, that's the way I like to approach these things, make a decision and move on. Well, Jen from Baltimore, Maryland says, Dan, I'm not sure if this is a podcast question, but I thought I would try. You once posted the steps for a successful sale of anything. I think it was three or four steps and talked about them and how, if you had the first two or three components, then the sale would make itself or something along those lines. Anyway, I was wondering if there was a way to recover that. I mentioned what I remembered at a meeting. My boss Wants to read all of it in your words, of course. Anyways, thanks for your time and all your advice. Well, let me just give it to you verbally, Jen. I know exactly what you're referring to. Selling anything does move through the same sequential process. Here's the deal. 40% of the process is developing rapport and trust. If people don't trust you, it doesn't matter if you've got $10 bills for 8 bucks. They aren't going to buy. So you have to develop rapport and trust. 30% is identifying the need. Do they need what it is that you have? If they don't, don't move on. Don't do a sales presentation if somebody doesn't have a need for what you have. 20% then is product presentation or product knowledge. That's 20%. 10% is gaining commitment. 10% is gaining commitment. That's the very last part of the whole process, gaining commitment. But that's the sequence. 40%? Developing rapport and trust, 30%, identifying need, 20%, product presentation, 10%, closing or gaining commitment. That's a process that works no matter what it is. And I mean, if you want to persuade somebody politically or theologically, it's the same process you move through. But certainly if you're selling water filters or encyclopedias or vacuum cleaners or cars or land, same process. You have to develop rapport and trust first, then identify need then product presentation, then gain commitment. And if you do it in that way, the gaining commitment is a very soft, just filling out the paperwork is all it is. You don't have to have pressure. Now here's how that can vary. An inexperienced salesperson will go right to the product presentation. So I walk into the car lot, they take me right over to the BMW 745 and say, man, this thing will, you know, do zero to 60 in 3.3 seconds. Your payment's only going to be $780 a month. And they haven't identified that I'm looking for a car for my daughter to drive back and forth to college. They haven't identified need or develop rapport and trust. And so there's where selling feels like pressure, where the person went right to the product presentation. That's where it's going to feel like pressure. That's what inexperienced salespeople do, not experienced, polished, mature professionals. Jessica from Columbus, Ohio, wants to know, there's a job that I would like to apply for, and this is the second time it's been posted, but I'm missing one qualification, which requires knowledge of a particular computer program. They would like to see a portfolio of my work, which in my case would include writing that I have done, but no photoshopped items, which is included in the computer program qualification. I would love to work for this company and I'm working on a second degree, which they actually want both of my degrees. What should I do? Well, Jessica, be aware. A list of requirements that an employer has is simply a starting point. The employer wants to screen out people so they don't get 800 responses. So they can make a long list of requirements that they have. But that's certainly not written in concrete. Now, when we bought the house that we currently have, I had a long list of requirements. We wanted it to be far away from trains, planes, and automobiles. We wanted it to be a real scenic spot with beautiful nature and trees surrounding. We wanted water running through the property somewhere. We wanted a farm-style house, a writer's paradise. Guess what? The house we bought had no water running through the property anywhere. Why did we buy it? because it had all those other things that we were looking for. And that was a small consideration in light of all the other things that it had. And then what we did a few years after we lived here, we had created a beautiful water feature right in front of our house that could never be duplicated naturally, but it looks like nature where it's water running off a cliff and then down into a a creek bed and then down into a pond. Obviously it's circulating because it's created not nature made but we love that and as a matter of fact not having running water is probably a blessing there's a whole lot of places in tennessee where they have running water well then when we have rain because of the way the runoff works and all all of a sudden you've got a house in danger being flooded and that's happened a lot to people we know who live in beautiful areas where there's a creek or a river running in front of their house so that was probably a protection that we don't have that, so we added that. Now here's here's what the deal is. Again, if you're if you're buying a car, you know, and you list that you want power windows and heated seats and a sunroof and fewer than thirty thousand miles, you want something that's red with a killer stereo system. Boom, you walk up and find a Mercedes, five hundred SEL, ready to go, gorgeous in every way. Oh, but wait a minute, it doesn't have heated seats. Well. Companies do the same thing in requirements for employees. They just have a long list of things that they want. Don't even think about hesitating to present yourself as a candidate. Let them know you are the person they're looking for. They're not going to, I mean, we have companies that list that a college degree is required. Why is a college degree required for somebody to do graphic design or data input or administrative assistant or 99% of the jobs out there? It has nothing to do with the details of what the responsibilities are. It's simply a screening tool. Can you apply if you don't have a college degree? Absolutely. Convince them you're the person for the job. They'll drop that requirement in a heartbeat. I see it happen every day. So don't be discouraged by that. Don't be deterred. You let them know you're the person they're looking for. Andrew from Nebraska says, Dan, thanks for being a constant mentor to me through your podcast as I create the work and life that I love. Right now, I'm working several part-time jobs just to make ends meet while I work on my webcomic site at pleasetip.us. I'm a graphic designer, a really good one. I've done quite a few freelance jobs that came from opportunities falling in my lap. I know I can make better money with fewer hours using my design skills, and I would be I would much rather do freelance than get a J-O-B as a designer. I'm unsure how to start drumming up business, though. Should I just go door-to-door and leave nicely designed flyers, business cards for the owners of local businesses? Should I do mass mailings and phone follow-ups? I'm not sure where to start. Any ideas would be appreciated. Andrew, well, yeah, I mean, you've got really just the world is your oyster, so to speak, as a graphic designer. There's so many things you can do. If you are in an office building where there are 70 other businesses, you know, in the same complex, yeah, you may want to go door to door there, but beyond that, no, it's kind of old school to just hand out flyers. You're probably going to want to do things that involve social media or networking that kind of go beyond that. Can you still get business in doing that? Sure. Absolutely. Because again, people are going to do business with somebody they know, like, and trust. So it's not just your skills that are going to speak. It's people that know you. So get involved in chamber of commerce, rotary club, whatever you've got locally there, network with other people, BNI, let it be known. This is what you do. So people give you referrals because they know, like, and trust you. You could also put yourself out there on elance.com, Crowdspring, 99 Designs. Those are sites that we use for design work. Now, most of that is going to be project work. I mean, I have a lot of design work done. We don't depend on any one person. We put it out there and then just see where talent emerges. So in those kind of environments, you aren't going to get paid top dollar. You're going to have to be competitive in your bids. But if you do really stellar work, you can very quickly build a portfolio that you can then show to other people. But those are some of the things you can do, sure, to get in the game quickly. Great question. Robert from Flint, Michigan. When can I leave my job with a clear conscience? Now this is a pretty interesting setup here. We have to kind of read between the lines. We'll go with it. Robert says, I spent several months at my job slacking off and not doing work I was paid to do. With God's help, the personal and spiritual issues have been fixed. But now I know I owe my employer what I stole from them. I give a hundred percent when I'm on the clock and I give a little more off the clock without having records of what I did and didn't do. How can I know the debt has been repaid and begin searching for other opportunities? Well, Robert, I appreciate your heart in this. There are a lot of gray areas in what you're talking about. When you say that you stole from them, I'm assuming you don't mean dollars that you did not embezzle and steal dollars, but just by your lack of giving 100% in your work, you didn't really give them what they thought they were paying for. And I commend you on recognizing that and attempting to, to fix that little challenge. But if they kept you on, then obviously it didn't get to the point where they thought you were not giving them fair value for what they were paying you. Now, keep in mind, I mean, I tell people all the day, you interview for your job every single day you show up. You don't just interview once and then you hang up your brain and just show up and put in your time to get a paycheck. No, companies are looking at you every day. Are you still giving value for the compensation that you're providing? So I, I assume that it did not get to the point where the company recognized you were not giving value for what they were paying you. And in that regard, you may not be as out of balance as what you might feel in your heart that you are. Having said that, is there a specific period of time in which you need to stay and do more than your share of work? No, but I'll guarantee you that every day that you're staying where you are doing more than what you're being paid for is opening up new opportunities for you that may show up in unexpected ways. You may find new opportunities presented to you right where you are or other people who recognize the caliber of work that you're getting. I mean, the way that I've always gotten new employees for things is to recognize people who in their current work situations are providing above and beyond service. And one time I hired a little blonde gal. Her name was Joy and her whole persona just reeked of joy. She was selling shoes at the mall. And I talked to her and I said, Callie, have you ever thought about doing something beyond what you're doing here? Well, yeah, but I just don't know what that would be. I brought her on when I had a health and fitness center. She was an amazing, just a bundle of enthusiasm in leading aerobic classes and in garnering new memberships for the club. She was dynamite. Well, in about six months, she bought a Corvette. I mean, I gave her an opportunity like she had never dreamed of because she had the personality that was a great fit for what I was looking for. And I recognized that because she wasn't groveling about her job. She was doing a stellar job of selling shoes. So do a stellar job where you are. You may be surprised the opportunities that show up. Again, there's no specific time limit on it. Go ahead and start your job search. If you find something in the next 90 days, give your notice, leave the job with your head held high and everybody will be served well. Bridget says, last summer I was fired from a job I hated by a boss I abhorred. You know when I first read this? I read it last summer I was fired from a job I hated by a boss I adored. (laughs) It's not adored, it's abhorred. I read 48 days and focused on the two areas that bring me greatest joy, teaching and fitness. I became certified to teach exceptional students and became a first year teacher in August. Last summer I volunteered to be the team lead for a fitness challenge. After the challenge, I was offered a staff position. I continued to prosper and was asked to return for second year by the principal. My staff position at the gym expanded. Now I teach aerobics two nights a week. Now that I have summers off, I want to expand my fitness business. I welcome any ideas on how to make a substantial income for me and my family. Well, talk to all the local health and fitness centers. Offer to do a free workshop in their facility. That'll expose you to a whole lot of potential clients. I mean, volunteer at your local 5K run or any other health kind of event. I mean, Set up a booth at health and fitness events or street fairs or festivals that you have there in your town. Contact local physicians. Ask for referrals but then leverage your expertise. So you aren't locked into just trading your time for money. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast, you understand that concept. If you just are training somebody personally and they're paying you hundred dollars an hour to do so, when you're not with somebody, you're not making any income, start to leverage your expertise. Now you can start a blog, do a podcast where you answer questions like I do here, create a simple audio program that people can buy and do in their own mean, create a hook Contact radio stations to be a guest there. Build your brand so you're not just one more person doing fitness training, but you are that person. You're the go-to person. Create some kind of a neat name for what it is that you do. When your name is Bridget Potter. There ought to be, I mean, that alone stands out there, but do some kind of a play on words there so you become known as the go-to person and you can build your business and, and certainly Profit wonderfully in doing that. If you're in a staff position, you ought to be able to move into doing your own fitness training and triple your income. Let me know when you do that. All right. Here's somebody who wants to stay anonymous. Dan, I hope this finds you well. a few months back. You were kind enough to answer a question of mine on training and credentials. I started. Oh no, this is not okay. I started a business on April 1st, 2013 and, and been creating a blog for almost a year My question was, you know, this is from Jennifer. This is not the anonymous one. Sorry. I give advice to friends now, but it feels kind of wrong to turn on them now and say, Hey, I do this professionally now pay up. you talked a lot about not needing training to be a successful coach. However, in drafting up my documents, limiting my liability. One thing that has been suggested is to list your credentials. I have a client who's willing to pay for one session starting Tuesday. Your answer in the podcast indicated you don't really need training to coach anyone What kind of statement would you suggest I make in giving someone my credentials as a coach? Now she goes on, but I want to stop right there. I want to jump in. Please, please hear me. I hope that I have never said you don't need training to be a coach. Now here's what I do say. I do say that the person on the street, your potential clients don't understand credentialing or certification as a coach. So if you have all those wonderful acronyms, ICF and other things behind your name, people on the street don't know what that means. In the same way, if you're a realtor, you may have 10 acronyms behind your name. Nobody but another realtor would understand what those are. That's what I say again and again in coaching. Certification is a very elusive kind of concept. We've identified over 300 organizations around the world that offer certification in coaching And there are very unclear standards as for what that means to be certified. So you can send in $37 tonight and tomorrow you get a paper that says you're certified. And it goes all the way up to a two-year in-house program at Johns Hopkins University to be certified as a coach. So don't focus on a certification, but certainly get training. You can start coaching today. If somebody's willing to pay you for that, you are a coach. But don't let that be the end of your training. Continue to get training in any way that you can. Go to workshops, seminars, read books, go through training programs. We have a coaching mastery program. I mean, we love having people in there, it is a certification program but we don't have people wait until they're at the end of that mastery program to begin coaching. As a matter of fact, you cannot be certified without having 40 hours of documented paid coaching that you've already done. So we want people to get in the game right away, but continue the training and learning process. So you can do that. You don't have to list anything. I mean, I have no specific certification or credentials, for being a coach. People don't ask about that. What they do ask about is, who have you worked with? I want to hear the testimony of some other people that you worked with. That's what you want to get immediately. But let me add very quickly, my training as a coach has never stopped. I've been coaching for 25 years. I, more than anybody, am a glutton for new information, new training. I have coached a coach that works with me. So I want to be coached that helps me be more effective as a coach. I go to more workshops and seminars than anybody I know on how to be a better coach. I hope that what I'm doing today is more effective, that I'm more effective as a coach today than I was three years ago, let alone 25 years ago. So I want to continue in the training process, be a glutton for that, but don't get trapped into thinking that you have to have specific certification. So I I hope that distinction is is clear enough there incidentally we've got the next coaching with excellence conference coming up the next one is in may if you want to be a coach please please join us for that conference coaching with Excellence. that's when you see on 48days.net in the community that we've got their coaches most of them got their start by coming to the basic coaching with excellence it's two days ashley my daughter and i take you through everything you need to know to get started in coaching, how to get your first clients, how to charge. I give you access to all the forms that I use, the intake profile that I get on people so that I know, is it a good match for me? The agreement that I have with clients. Some people are concerned about that. What kind of agreement do you have? What do you do if somebody's paid you and then halfway in, you know, they aren't happy with what they're getting. We deal with those kind of things, how you can position yourself and how you can put yourself in the top Five percent in terms of income earners as coaches. Now, it's not that challenging to do. We know that 95% of coaches never make more than $40,000 a year. 95% never make more than $40,000 a year. Now, if you want to just do it as a side little hobby and make $40,000 a year, that's fine. But if you want to know how to put yourself in the top 5%, we show you how to do that. And it is not difficult at all. And we have coaches that are making a whole lot more than $40,000. Now I won't bore you with big numbers. I don't like to do that, but there are coaches who trust me are, are doing multiples of that in effective coaching. We'll also show you how to leverage your expertise. Just like I talked about in the previous question, where if you are a coach, you ought to be paid for speaking. You ought to have products that people can pay you for. You ought to have affiliate links that you're using that create income. So we go through my model of how to create a Venn diagram, how to create extraordinary income, not just in having one more client sitting in the chair across from you or on the phone, but how to leverage the intellectual expertise that you have that make you competent to be a coach, how you can leverage that so that you do create not only extraordinary linear income, but extraordinary residual income. Again, you'll understand the distinction there. Linear, you do it one time to get paid for it. Residual, you do it one time to get paid 10,000 times. That's the kind of thing I like to look at. That's why we have instructional manuals and audio products and books and referral agreements, all kinds of things that make money while I sleep. You can do that as a coach. But anyway, check out the Coaching with Excellence. It's one of the live events under the 48days.com site. You'll see live events. Just click on that. Go through that. If you have any questions, golly, shoot me an email. Just shoot an email to Dan at 48days.com or to Ashley at 48days.com. Either of us will be happy to answer questions about that. Uh, We've got a lot of people already registered. I don't know exactly where we are, but uh, that's a great event to launch you into your speaking career if that's what you want here's the one that wants to be anonymous i'll keep it as that dan i listen to your podcast you have rescued me many times i have a cautionary tale for your listeners i prefer to remain anonymous no problem i feel like the boiled frog now you you know that kind of uh metaphor that we use often if you put a frog in Hot water will jump out, but you put a frog in lukewarm water and slowly turn up the heat, he'll sit there and cook to death. Now, I don't know if that's scientifically true, but it's used as a metaphor, and it certainly describes what happens to a lot of people. So our listener here goes on. I feel like the boiled frog. The company I worked for was acquired. I was assured of a commensurate position in the new organization. I was put in a placeholder job waiting for the organization changes that were coming. I was complacent and now I've been put into a role that is so personally uncomfortable for me that I've considered quitting to avoid the humiliation. I'm ashamed that I sat by and let this happen. A word to your listeners, don't assume that anyone is looking after you. Frogs aren't the only creatures that get boiled. I sat in the warm water for so long, I didn't see what was coming. And now I'm doing something to fix it. Well, recognizing the problem is half the solution. So if you recognize that you let that happen, Hey, you're halfway there. So certainly take action. Now, a lot of times in transitions like this, you know, a lot of unexpected things happen. I mean, even the company organizers, the company officials can't always predict with accuracy what's going to happen And they want to keep the cards in their hand, obviously. So they put you in a placeholder position and assumed that they were going to find some kind of a place for you. What you describe is not totally unexpected. And the fact that they put you in a position that's personally humiliating and uncomfortable may be by design. It may be that they are embarrassed that they kept you around And they don't want to come to you now and say, well, we've decided, we've changed our mind. We really don't need you adios with all the implications of that for the company. So you may be reading this accurately. They may be in agreement that it's time for you to move on. So certainly don't get caught flat footed. Know what your options are. Know what your highest areas of competence are. Know where there would be a potential match for the use of your skills. Who would a new customer be? What would a new customer look like for you? So do your job search so you know you have some other options out there. You know what your marketability is. It's a healthy thing to do at any given time. And in that period of time, let's say that takes you 38 days or 48 days. In that period of time, maybe you'll get more clarification about what's happening at your current company. And if things aren't changing in a positive way, then you'll be prepared to give your notice and walk out with your head held high. Well, let me grab a couple more here, Stephen, from Antioch, Tennessee, right here in my own hometown. Now this is a this is a pretty complicated question here. Stephen says, after seeing the abuse my friends suffered at the hands of a local church, as well as the cowardly response we received when trying to bring other local pastors on board to initiate or moderate an accountability meeting between all parties. I decided I wanted to start a church affiliation similar to that of the Better Business Bureau with a website that would post every church in Middle Tennessee and their affiliation as well as their beliefs. I would also want to have a floating board of pastors who would help mediate such conflicts and list the conflicts and its resolution on this site. I believe this would work as a deterrent from abuse, especially from churches that are not being held accountable by their own affiliation. Do you know any cities doing anything similar to this now? How could I fund something like this, turn it into a business? Steve, here's my recommendation. Instead of doing this, why don't you just teach pigs to fly? Now, you get my point. It's impossible to teach pigs to fly. I think what you're describing is impossible. My goodness. Here's the deal. There are times when we recognize something as a need. No question about it. Just because there's a need, can we create a business model that makes sense? Not always. And in this case, I think this is a bag of worms that you're proposing to try to get church. I mean, the very churches that need it most will be the least likely to buy in. What you'll have is a clean list of those that are proper and upstanding and it will totally bypass those that really need to be addressed in what you're stating here. You can't force people to be a part of this organization. You can't force a business to be part of the Better Business Bureau. And just because a business isn't listed in the Better Business Bureau doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean they're bad. It just means they haven't paid the fee to be part of that organization. And you're implying here you would need to have them pay some kind of a fee to be part of that. Now, are there similar things? Are there like the financial accountability organization that was set up so that nonprofit groups like churches and ministry groups can be a part of that. So that they show that they're using their finances responsibly. Yeah. There are organizations like that. To me, the work that's involved in that arena to make that work, it's not worth it. And now, now let me, let me add this though. You're right here in Nashville, Tennessee. There's an organization here that is doing something similar it's called Operation Andrew. Operation Andrew. I went and pulled up just a clip that that the head of that is Dr. Charles McGowan. He's a great guy, a friend of mine. He was the long-time senior pastor at Christ Pres, Presbyterian Church over on Old or on Old Hick, or on Hill Yeah, on Old Hickory Boulevard in Brentwood, Christ Presbyterian Church. Dr. Charles McGowan, great guy. The Operation Andrew Group acts as a strategic catalyst in the community. It brings together a wide spectrum of churches. It strives to provide vision networks and equipping tools that facilitate a spirit of unity, love, and compassion. We believe it is possible to see true transformation in our communities if we are able to set aside the differences we have denominationally, culturally, ethnically, economically, and whatever else that separates us. In a lot of ways, they're trying to do what you're talking about you can look at that operationandrew.org took you right to the site and you can see what they're doing so that's similar there's no clear financial model for making that work operation andrew is supported by a lot of churches because they love dr mcgowan and what he's doing and they promote major events that bring all the denominations together so it's not really an accountability group and yet a lot of the pastors being a part of that group really do have the opportunity to speak into each other's lives and call each other to accountability if the need should arise so yeah it can be done i certainly wouldn't have the patience for it not for all the tea in china but you can look for some models like Operation Andrew as a somewhat similar prototype for what you're wanting to do. Personally, when things get that messy in a church, I don't know how it's corrected. That's why new churches are started. Sometimes it's just good to move on instead of trying to Fix what's wrong, it's better just to move on. You may disagree with that, but I've not seen a lot of people come out winners in church situations where there's conflict and they fight about it to try to fix it. Certainly not my style. Well, let me, let me just grab one more question here. Eskedar, Eskedar Yirga Alim from Chicago, just in Chicago. Perhaps we met Dan. How can one assess when it's time to look for another work opportunity? What questions should I ask myself when I begin to think it's time to move on? I find that I get a feeling that it's time to move on, but I don't trust my judgment thinking that I may be making just an emotional decision. I appreciate your time and consideration. Wow. Well, This whole idea of just being in one place and staying there has become pretty much dismantled when we know that the average stay in a company position is about 2.2 years. The latest statistics I have from the Bureau of Labor Statistics show that between the ages of 18 and 42, a person is going to change jobs an average of 10.8 times. That works out to be about 2.2 years. We know that somebody in their 20s changes job every 13 months. That's the average. So it's not a black mark on your resume to change jobs. And if you get a sense that your time there is kind of over, I mean, really in companies looking at a person's resume these days, they have somebody who's been at the same company for 20 years may in fact work against you. They may ask themselves, wow, has this person kept up with the times? Have they stayed current or have they just stayed in the same place because they got a paycheck every Friday. So be careful about staying in one place too long. Now, with that being said, trust your sense of peace. You know, a lot of times, even in just identifying if it is it God's will, it comes down to having a sense of peace or lack thereof. Trust your lack of peace about staying where you are. If that's what you're dealing with, start to look at the new options. You don't just burn the bridges, but look at the new options. Do a great job search. And in doing that, you'll find what the next season of your life is going to look like. Hey, thanks for the question. Well, here we are out of time already. Moving on, taking care of business. Hope this has been instructive. This has been one of the highlights of my week. Always as it is. Answer your questions about how do we find or create work that is meaningful, productive, and profitable. It can be that as well. Don't settle for less. Have a great week. Check out the 48days.net community. A lot of growing group there. People sharing ideas and advice to help each of us go to higher levels of success. Let us know what you're doing as you are moving into work that in fact is your most meaningful thing that you do every week. Keep us posted.